Well, it's a privilege to sing with you a theme that I noticed running through those songs, which you maybe wouldn't notice unless you were looking for it, is the freedom that we have in Christ. And I noticed because that's going to come up in our text today, so I'm thankful for the overlap there. We'll get there in a minute. I want to start off with uh, just a little illustration A story from 1825, there was a French gourmet chef with a name that I cannot pronounce. He published uh, this quote in his book, Physiology of Taste. You've got a picture of him up there. The quote is in French, and I, I will attempt to pronounce this since I took one semester of French in high school, so I'm feeling pretty confident about myself here. Here it goes. Dis-moi ce que tu manges, je te dirai ce que tu es. Now, hold your applause, everybody. It's okay. Surely someone in this room actually speaks French and can tell me later how I did. Uh, that, that quote from this French book translates to, tell me what you eat, and I will tell you who you are. Our Americanized version of this quote is, you are what you eat. That's right. Something you've probably said once or twice in your life. Now, I I know that it's cruel to talk too much about food this close to lunchtime, but there is a deep spiritual truth in this phrase, you are what you eat. Uh, This phrase can help us remember a deep truth, uh, but it needs to be modified to uh, you become what you look at or you become what you behold, if you will. I appreciated Rick's reading of Psalm 115, and I, I think we have to admit that that psalm, at least the, the beginning of it, is a little bit chilling. It says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They, they have mouths and cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. And then later it, it says, those who make them will become like them. You become what you behold. You become what you worship. Us modern Westerners don't have idols made of silver and gold, though, do we? No, our idols are way worse than that. They're they're made of silicone. I'm talking about screens, entertainment, mindless surfing and scrolling. We watch things we shouldn't watch, or we watch too much of it, and we watch it at the expense of fulfilling our God-given roles and responsibilities. And and when you watch worthless things, you become worthless, becoming what you're beholding, becoming what you're worshiping. Last week, we started a a two-part message in the chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You can start turning there in your Bible. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide in the chairs in front of you, Uh, You'll find our passage on page 1156. Some of you weren't here last week, and some of us can't remember what we had for breakfast even this morning, so I'd like to give you just a a quick recap of uh, what what we talked about last week. In the first six verses of 2 Corinthians 3, we learned that ministry happens when we find our worth in Christ. Paul answered the question, in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, that said, who is adequate for these things? And he answered that question by saying, essentially, 
Nobody is adequate. Nobody is good enough for gospel ministry. No one is really sufficient to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified to an unbelieving, rebellious world. We're all out of our depth. And from a human perspective, this makes sense. How could we, as a sinner, find another sinner and tell them that they need to repent? Seems hypocritical when you look at it that way, but there's something else going on in this chapter. If you were to read the entirety of chapter 3 out loud, you would find the word glory coming out of your mouth over and over again. You'll hear it when I read our passage in just a few minutes. Paul is trying to explain that the new covenant ministry emulates and shines forth a transforming glory. We said last week that glory is the visible manifestation of God's perfect morality and perfect beauty. And certain people have caught sight of this glory and have been transformed by it. Because you see, becoming what you behold works also in this direction. It's not only that if we behold an idol, we become worthless and mute and dumb and deaf, but also if we look at the glory of the new covenant, the glory of God, we become more and more glorious. The ones that have seen the transforming glory are the ones who are adequate and good enough to call for the transformation of others. And they do it by trying to show them the same glory that they've seen. This is the message of the gospel. I'm not trying to say it in confusing terms. This is the gospel. You weren't good enough, but Christ makes you good enough, and he commissions you to work for him. He gives you purpose, meaning, and mission. And he works through you with his Holy Spirit to accomplish that purpose, meaning, and mission. But first, you have to see the glory of God in the gospel. Chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians talks about the gospel as a fragrance that you smell. But chapters 3 and 4 talk about the gospel as a light that you either see or that Satan blinds you from seeing. But if you do see it, it transforms you. Think of this Greek mythological character that you've probably at least heard of her name I'm not an expert on this story, but think of the character Medusa. She was a beautiful goddess who was defiled, and it turned her into an evil being. And the myth says that if an individual looked into the eyes of Medusa, then their flesh could turn into lifeless stone. The gospel, as described in 2 Corinthians 3, is the opposite of this. We were all lifeless stones with no ability to do good, lifeless stones with our eyes sculpted shut, and we couldn't even open our own eyes to see the glory of God that is shining all around us. But then God did something for us. He opened our eyes, right? He opens our eyes so that we can catch a glimpse of his glory, and it transforms our lifeless, good-for-nothing stone bodies stone minds, and stone hearts into flesh, redeemed and useful. Those who have caught a glimpse of God's glory are useful to him. They have an eternal destiny, a purpose, a mission, 
and a reason to exist. Doesn't our world need this message? Don't the young people in our city, in our community, need to know why they're here? Because our, our cultural institutions have degenerated into groups that are willing to question the foundations that our society is built on. Your average university out there, and we live close to a couple of them, your average university will teach you that there's no God, no gender, no helpful hierarchy, and no obligation to conserve the traditional beliefs in our culture that is based on scripture. What does that leave us with? A bunch of young people who have no idea what the purpose of their life is. And as disciples of Christ, we can do something that a humanist, a secularist, a postmodern, an atheist, an evolutionist, as disciples of Christ, we can do something that those people can never do. We can look a young person in the eye and say, you're not an accident. You're not a mistake. Your life has a purpose. You are an image bearer of God, and you exist to spread God's name and reflect God's image to all creation. That was last week, plus a little extra. Today we're going to cover verses 7 through 18 of chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians. So follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 7. And I'll read to the end of the chapter. But if the ministry of death, engraved in letters on stones, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory... Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, and whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So woven into these verses are five statements about the glory of the new covenant, and All five of these statements describe something about the glory, and they compare it to the glory of the Old Covenant, and all five of them should change the way that we do ministry. But before we jump into those five statements, it would be wise to review 
uh, the story from the Old Testament that is in Paul's mind and comes out through his pen as he writes. Paul is alluding to uh, the story of Moses going up onto the mountain to see God and to see his glory. And lots of us know the book of Exodus pretty well. We know that, that Moses went up the mountain the first time to get the Ten Commandments, and the Israelites were at the bottom, waiting patiently, doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing, right? No. No, they were worshiping the golden calf. God had just delivered them from, the, from slavery in Egypt. God calls Moses up to the mountain, and they're worshiping the golden calf, betraying the God who had just delivered them. So Moses comes down the mountain, takes care of business, goes back up, and he intercedes for the sin of the Israelites, makes a request of God, and he he said to God, show me your glory. That's what he wants at this time. Show me your glory. And God God agreed, but, but warned him that no one can see the full glory of God and live. No one can survive. So what does God do? He places Moses in the cleft of the rock and kind of covers his eyes as he starts to walk by. He takes away his hand and Moses gets to see the back of God as he proclaimed, as God is proclaiming these verses, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. God continues speaking. He says, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses, after seeing the glory of God in a unique way, it says he made haste to worship. He fell on his face. It was overwhelming. And later, when he went down the mountain again to communicate the law to the Israelites, the old covenant. It says that his face was shining. It was shining so much that he had to put a veil over it so that they wouldn't gaze at the glory that was intended to fade away. That's the glory of the old covenant. And this is the story that Paul is using as he compares new covenant glory to that. And he makes five statements about it, as I said. So the first statement of comparison is that the glory, the new covenant glory, is greater. It's greater. He starts off our passage in verse 7 by calling the Ten Commandments, the law, the old covenant. He calls it the ministry of death. Don't miss the significance of Paul calling it the ministry of death. Something that a Pharisee, Paul was a former Pharisee, something that you would not expect him to say. Pharisees loved the law, lived by the law. He probably had the entire uh, first five books of the Bible memorized, at least at some point in his life. But now, as an apostle of the new covenant, he's calling it the ministry of death. Well, how can he do this? Partially because of what he's comparing it to. Verse 7 says, If the ministry of death, engraved in letters on stones, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, fail to be even more with glory? The glory of the law fading away. Not so with the glory of the gospel, the new covenant. That's permanent. Remember, glory 
is the visible manifestation of God's perfect morality and perfect beauty. The law was good because God revealed himself visibly with the law. The new covenant is better because God revealed himself even more through that. How much more? We'll keep reading in verse 9. He says, If the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains is in glory. So how, how much greater is the glory, you might ask? Well, how much gr- brighter is the sun than a candle? A candle emits probably more light than we realize. A few months ago, when the power went out for several days, I think we all remember this, uh, the, when, when the power went out, some of us were relying on candles. Our daughter was only a couple weeks old. We had just brought her home from the hospital, so very important to keep her warm. And so we decided to stay up all night, taking turns, taking turns holding her to keep her warm. Thankfully, our, our neighbor, Paul Hoops, had brought us some candles so that we could see overnight, and I found myself surprised at the, I was surprised at how much light was being emitted by the, just a couple candles in the room. Now, it wasn't bright enough overnight to do surgery or anything like that, but it was bright enough to hold a baby, and I, I just couldn't believe how well I could see with the light of just a couple candles. But let's, let's take the same candle outside on a bright, sunny day. If I'm holding a, a candle on a sunny day, I might not even be able to tell if it's lit or not because of, the bright of, because of the light from the sun. And if I were to hold the candle up in the, in the air, place it next to the sun in the open sky, I, wouldn't, I would be overwhelmed by the light that's coming from the sun. This is the difference between the old covenant of the law and the new covenant of the gospel. Not only is the glory of the new covenant infinitely brighter so that the glory of the old covenant comes to nothing, but also, just as a candle can only burn and emit light for a few hours, really, it's going to go out soon. The old covenant also was temporary and intended from the beginning to be replaced with something that will last. So, so the glory is greater, not only in magnitude, but also in duration. That's number one. Here's number two. The glory is veiled to some. The end of verse 14 says, For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Verse 15, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. The glory, although, is, although it's bright and obvious, like the sun, is hidden from those who don't know Christ. Even, uh, even chapter 4, just a few verses down in your Bibles, talks about Satan blinding unbelievers so that they can't see it. This is the same reality that Paul also tried to describe when he was talking about it as a smell, as, a, as an aroma in chapter 2. And he said, to the one, Christ is an aroma of death, but to the other an aroma of life. The gospel doesn't smell the same to everyone, and it doesn't look the same to everyone. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said this. He said, We preach Christ crucified, 
to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If that's not enough for you, think of these foundational verses in Romans chapter 1. I know this is a, a lot of Bible, but we are, after all, in church. Romans 1, starting in verse 18, says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Later it would say that professing to be wise, they became fools. What I want you to see from all of these passages, especially the passage we're in, in 2 Corinthians, is that some people, just plain, cannot see the glory of God. And woe unto us if that doesn't give us compassion for unbelievers and humility about our own salvation. You did not become a Christian because you're more clever or better at seeing glory than other people. The glory is veiled to some, but praise the Lord for statement number three, the glory is unveiled to others. Verse 13 says, we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face. Verse 16 says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Verse 18 says, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. I don't have to say too much about this one, because it's just the opposite of what we we just went through. But what I will say is that if you are in a position where you can see and enjoy the glory of God through the new covenant, every once in a while, those of us who can describe ourselves that way need to be spending a little extra time on our knees thanking God for opening our eyes. And there's, there's more appropriate responses than just saying thank you. Like you can actually live a life that demonstrates thankfulness and demonstrates to God that you understand to a small degree, the miracle that he has performed for you. And we'll talk about that later. But it doesn't hurt to spend some extra minutes on your knees thanking God for allowing you to be one of the ones who can see, for whom the veil is removed. So far, I've said that the glory is greater. It's veiled to some. It's unveiled to others. Number four is that it's liberating from verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Now, most people don't associate liberty or or freedom with religion, do they? (laughs) That's like the opposite of what they think when they think of religion. This passage says that the glory of the gospel is liberating. That there's freedom where the Spirit of the Lord is. And, And we know from last week that the Spirit is kind of shorthand for the New Covenant because the New Covenant is unique because of the role of the Holy Spirit. What what does it mean that freedom accompanies the New Covenant? Does it mean that we're free from the law? We are, kind of. But does freedom from the law mean that we can do whatever we want 
and that we can now engage in whatever behavior we want, sinful as it may be. Christ paid for the sin, so I'm going to run up a full bill. It's like when you find out someone else is paying at a restaurant, well, I'm going to order the appetizer then. Paul says in Romans 6, by no means, or God forbid. The freedom that is talked about here is not the freedom to sin, but the freedom from sin. You were enslaved and now you're free. If you've really seen the glory of the Lord, if you've really turned your eyes upon Jesus, like the hymn says, then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Do you really believe that, Christian? Do you really believe that you are most free when you're doing exactly what God wants you to be doing? If someone who is reluctant to become a Christian might say that, that they don't want to deal with the limitations of religion, that's a little bit like a fish not wanting to be limited to the water. It's a little bit like a train not wanting to be limited to the tracks, wanting to be free from its tracks so that it can roam and explore the countryside. It's not going to work. Maybe even like a bird wanting to be free from its wings. The great messianic prophecy in Psalm 2 describes the nation's sinful rebellion by saying that the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let the person who wants to be free of the Almighty God be warned. You were designed to live under authority. Do you hear me, teenager, who is counting down the months and days until you can move out and be free? Do you hear me? If you're a middle-aged man or woman who thinks that they can't be happy and can't be fulfilled until you're retired because then you'd be free from your job and free from your boss. And maybe, maybe some parents think that freedom comes when a child reaches a certain age or a certain level of independence you want to be free from the responsibilities that God has given you, taking care of them. Listen to this verse and have faith that you don't need a certain circumstance to experience the joy and freedom of the Lord. Because his glory is shining all around us and where his spirit resides, there is liberty. You can't be free when you're not submitted with your whole being to the God of freedom. But this glory isn't only liberating, it's also, lastly, a transforming glory. Verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. I started off with that silly French book, trying to illustrate that you become what you behold, our passage is bidding us to turn to Christ and behold the glory of the Lord through the gospel. If you've never turned to Christ, this is what we call getting saved. If you have turned to him before, then we call this sanctification. Because last week I said that the gospel that saves us also sends us. Well, it does a third thing, too. It makes us more Christ-like. It's the same gospel that does all those things. Turning to the Lord saves us, 
sends us to others, and makes us more like Christ. The gospel transforms sinners into justified sinners. And then it transforms justified sinners into sanctified sinners. And the reason, one of the reasons that we call the end of this process glorification is because of the glory of the gospel working through us the whole time. If you've never turned to Jesus and never started the process of becoming more Christ-like, if you've never received the Holy Spirit that enables you to kill sin and to minister to others, then you're invited today to turn from your sin and place your, your trust and your faith in Christ alone. There are lots of people here who would love to talk to you about that, myself included. So if you have questions about God or about the Bible or about salvation or even about church, don't go anywhere today without talking to someone. Come find me, come find someone else, and we would love to open a Bible and talk to you about how you can turn to Jesus and experience the things that this passage is describing. The glory really does transform every part of your life. And so many people who are here this morning can tell you from experience that it is totally worth it to give up your sin and to receive a relationship with Christ. What you give up does not compare with what you get. In this series, I've been uh, applying the truth of each passage to ministry, and Paul is telling the Corinthians these things, these five statements, because he wants them to realize that he is genuine, he's a true apostle, he's defending his ministry, and, and we hear his philosophy of ministry. Today our, our big idea is that ministry happens as the Lord reveals his transforming glory. And just as there were five statements about the glory of the new covenant compared with the glory of the old covenant, there's going to be uh, five applications for how this changes the way we live our lives. Don't fear, each of these five is shorter than the previous five. Number one is that since the glory is greater, we should be bolder. That's how Paul applies the truth of this passage in verse 12 when he says, Therefore, in light of the fact that the glory is greater, in light of this, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech playing off the fact that Moses had to cover the glory with a veil. Paul is saying we don't have to cover up any glory. We don't need to hide the glory anymore. Verse 13, we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. This new covenant glory isn't going anywhere. It's not fading away, so we don't have to hide it. In fact, we're instructed to share it. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. Are you being bold with the gospel? Are you eager to share? And do you believe that what you have can change lives? People need what we have. The world is running on a short supply of truth. Secondly, since the glory is veiled to some, we should keep speaking. Verse 14 says that their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, 
the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Similar idea to what we were just saying, but trying to emphasize the truth that we're trying to show blind people light. This is not something that happens naturally. And we don't know whose eyes are going to be opened by God. We don't know how many times we will have to share the gospel with someone before they will see or if they will ever see. So, so be encouraged if you have someone in your life who has heard the gospel dozens of times, but they haven't responded yet. Because God can save them. You have no idea when the veil could be lifted. Keep speaking. Faithfully present the gospel to the end. Number three. Since the glory is unveiled to us, we should keep looking. Returning here from the idea of sharing the truth to others, returning to talk about sharing the truth with ourselves. We've, re- we've received the gift of sight, so let's use it. We can see the glory of God in creation, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, but we can see the glory of God most clearly by looking to Jesus, and we know that Jesus is revealed most clearly in the words of the Bible. We get to know the living word by studying the written word. And if someone, if someone asked me, do you believe that Jesus could speak to someone today? I would answer, Jesus speaks to us all the time in the Bible. The Bible, every word is inspired, and the Bible as a whole is everything that we need for salvation. Everything that we need to live a life that pleases him. I'll quote another hymn. How firm a foundation, O saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Here's the key. What more can he say than to you he has said? God doesn't need to speak to you in any way other than through the pages of Scripture. That's how he's revealed himself. You have everything you need right here, on your lap, on your phone. You also have way more access to it than almost anyone else in human history. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate to you how ridiculous, how crazy it is for those people who have been granted spiritual sight to not keep looking. Because God intends for your discovery of him through the Bible to be a delight. So I want you married folks to think back. Think back to that first kiss with your spouse. That's right. That's not where you thought I was going. Cover your ears, kids. (laughs) Think back to that first kiss. I have a feeling that nobody in the moments following that first kiss said, well... That was a blessing. Pleasure doing business with you, and I'll see you in a week or two. That's not how we respond to delight, is it? We want more. (laughs) I'm going to stop there. (laughs) Isn't that so often, though, our mechanical response to encountering God in the Bible? That was a blessing. See you in a week or two. Isn't it silly for a believer who has been given the gift of sight, for someone who can see the glory that transforms, isn't it silly for them to not build their life around the Bible? Not only should we keep looking, but we should work harder 
because the glory is liberating. Since the glory is liberating, we should work harder. If the gospel really sets us free, let it be said that we were set free to work and not to laziness. If there really is liberty wherever the spirit of the Lord is, let it be said that we used our liberty for others and not for ourselves. Those who are free should be the most productive. I love C.S. Lewis's books on Narnia. I love C.S. Lewis's books in general, but I love the Chronicles of Narnia. They're children's stories, but they're, they're good for adults too. One of his stories is about some talking horses that were born in the free land of Narnia, but they were kidnapped when they were just foals, and uh, they were taken to slavery in another land. Uh, This story is them escaping back into the freedom, and and as they're escaping back into the free land of Aslan, uh, the lion who represents Christ, they're given a mission by him. They're given a mission, and it involves them hurrying and, and working hard, crossing the desert quickly in order to accomplish the mission that Aslan gave them. And there's some dialogue between the horses. Uh, one of them, because he gets tired, he wants to take a break. He wants to run slowly, take it easy, and not, not be so uh, worked up about this time-sensitive mission. But the other horse sagely replies by saying, you know... When horses have humans with spurs and things on their backs, aren't they often made to go on when they're feeling like this? And, and then they find that they can. I mean, shouldn't we be able to do even more now that we're free? That's the kind of uh, good moral messaging that C.S. Lewis works into his books. If you, could, if you had a slave driver on your back digging into your sides with spurs, you would find you'd be able to run harder. That's what the horse is saying. Doesn't that apply to the freedom that Christ bought for us? If we were trying to earn our salvation, like if we really believe that, you know, we need to do some good things in order to, in order to go to heaven, that's not what the Bible teaches. I'm just saying if we, if we had thought that or if that was reality, wouldn't we find that we could do a lot more than what we do sometimes? Shouldn't the freedom that we have in Christ enable us to work even harder on the mission that he gave us. It's our, it's our joy that, that we don't have to earn salvation. It's our joy that Christ paid it all for us and that we don't contribute anything to it. But if we had to work, do you think we'd find ourselves working harder? It's a good question for us to consider at least. This freedom means that we can give up time-wasting habits and fruitless relationships in order to make room for the things that are most important, for the things that Jesus says are most important. The glory of the new covenant liberates. Lastly, it transforms, and since it transforms, we should normalize growth. Verse 18 says that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. I know that's a strange phrase, normalize growth. I'll explain what I mean by that. We're moving from glory to glory. We're progressing through the stages of Christ-likeness, becoming more and more like the Son who saved us. And growth and change needs to become the normal expectation of those who claim to know Christ. Two, two thoughts about normalizing growth. Number one, confession of sin, I believe, is so overlooked in the Christian life. 
Can, can you think of the last time that you messed up? It doesn't have to be in a major way, but the last time that you messed up, and it was obvious, everyone knew, and you confessed that sin not only to the person or people that you hurt, excuse me, not only to God, but also to the person or the people that you hurt, but then not only do you confess that sin to those people, but you also confess the sin to someone else in the church. Have you ever thought about that? Now, I'm not trying to say, thou shalt, thou shalt not, where the Bible doesn't, but here's what the Bible does say. It tells us to confess our sins to one another. And the one another commands all over the place in the New Testament are referring to the local body of believers. Christians are commanded in the New Testament to confess their sins to one another. That doesn't mean, I'm not talking about coming up to the pulpit to do it, or a business meeting, or anything like that. It doesn't even mean that you have to talk to a pastor about it, but you really should talk to somebody about it. Men to men, ladies to ladies. You blow up at your spouse, talk to someone at the church. Confess it. Own your sin. You watch porn. Does anyone know? You're not going to kill that sin without shedding some light on it. Do you waste every evening in front of the TV? I truly believe that a big reason so many of us can struggle and get in a rut with sin for long periods of time, large portions of our life spent in the same struggle, I truly believe that one of the reasons for that is we don't talk about it with the people that we have covenanted with. The New Testament says we are members of one another. Jesus said you should be willing to leave your family in order to pursue him. I think there's some implications there about how close you are to the people in your local church. Covenant is thicker than blood, one author says. Confession is the missing piece in our growth for so many of us. I said I have two thoughts. If the first was called confession, then the second one would be called accountability. Here's the thing. There's a lot of overlap between confession and accountability. Isn't there a natural accountability that comes when you own your sin to someone else? Here's what I don't mean by accountability. I used to go to camp every summer, ever since third grade. I've been going to summer camp. I I loved it. I I still think it's great to do. I'd get convicted of my sin, promise to do better. I'd ask a friend to hold me accountable once in a while. But my accountability groups never really got past this stage that I'll show you in just a second. This isn't a screenshot from my messages. This is what the the kids call a meme, but uh, I'll put it up there. Checking in, no reply. Checking in, I'm bad. Checking in, I'm doing bad. It's meant to be funny. Apparently, I have a unique sense of humor. (laughs) But isn't this sometimes how our accountability groups can look? Proverbs 27.6 says that The wounds of a friend are faithful. To tie confession and accountability into one, wouldn't it make sense if you really wanted to be done with your sin? Wouldn't it make sense to confess it to someone who's actually going to help you, actually going to hold you accountable? Maybe your Christian walk is weak because your relationships in the church are weak. Read the New Testament epistles and see how many times it says blank one another, something one another. Our life in the church is meant to be life together. And if if you've become a member, 
you have voluntarily placed yourself under the authority of the people around you. You've given them permission to say to you, hey, you're not representing Jesus well. Let me, let me help you. Don't feel adequate? None of us are. That's why we need to rely on the Holy Spirit who enables us to view the glory of the new covenant and be transformed as God reveals his glory to us. We become what we behold. So what has your attention today? What are, what are you beholding? What's influencing you? What are you looking at? Would you describe your life as distracted or focused? Jesus told his followers to seek the kingdom of heaven and everything else would fall into place. Can you say with confidence that you are consistently turning to the Lord so that you can be transformed from glory to glory? If you know Christ, you have been liberated from your blindness and your sin, and you have the option to constantly adjust your gaze, to have the veil removed and be transformed. We know it comes from the Lord through his spirit, so let's close today by asking for his help. Father, we ask with Paul, who is adequate, who is good enough. We ask with Moses, show us your glory. We want to be changed. We know you have done this. You've given us your word. You've given us everything we need. Help us to take advantage of it. Help us to work hard because of the freedom that we have. Help us to keep speaking since our veil has been removed. Give us great boldness with the gospel. And I pray that you would tie our lives and our hearts together as a church so that we can live our lives together in greater confession and in greater accountability. And I pray that all of this would work together to come out to us looking to you, turning to the Lord, seeing the glory, and being transformed. We ask for the miracle of sanctification. We ask for you to finish the work that you've started in us and help us to not work against you in any way by clinging to our sin and the weights that so easily ensnare us. Bless us as we go our separate ways today. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.